Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia Apostle, a fat professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against weight stigma, diet culture, fat phobia, ableism, racism, etc. You can get more Fat Joy goodness, including how you can support the podcast through my newsletter at fatjoy.substack.com. And for episode transcripts, book reviews, and show notes, head to the Fat Joy website at fatjoy.life. I am so glad you're here. Enjoy this episode. Hello, lovelies, and welcome back to the Fat Joy Podcast. I'm Sophia, and I am so excited to be joined by Christina Hughes today. Hi, Christina. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. So I've been following you for a little while, and I mentioned this before we even started recording, but you made this video that I've shared, a few, I think, twice now about how fat people are supposed to wear their seatbelt, which in a way on the surface has nothing to do with what you actually do. But I, every time I share it, I get people writing me saying, oh my God, thank you. I had no idea. And I had no idea when you shared it. So I just, I want to start by saying like, the the bits of information that you share on social this is for everybody helpful tips like this it's amazing the ripple effects it can have like i feel like if i were an accident you just saved my intestines you know right yeah we we don't talk about we don't talk about fat bodies right because it's a often a shameful off topic you know conversation where no one wants to be fat right in quotes right and so we don't talk about how to accommodate those bodies and how to make the systems and 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 uh physical things that we live with every day right work for our bodies yeah and i'm i'm just so appreciating i'm starting to see a little more of this like i think is it is it anna chapman who does like fat self-care so you know I'm not sure if they're pronounced, so I'll use they, but they talked about like belly liners when it gets hot and we're sweaty. There's all just so much more. Oh my gosh. Anything to do with chub rub and different types of clothing. Like it's so helpful to learn these things and that there are people talking about it more and more, which brings us to what you do in the world, which is that you are a birth doula which is amazing. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm Christina, you, she, her pronouns. I am the uh, founder and co-owner of Big Fat Pregnancy, uh, which is a full spectrum doula services um, business. We also offer um, birth mentoring and childbirth ed, where we focus on empowering um, fat folks to move through their pregnancy, birth, and postpartum uh, with confidence, um, with uh, education, with evidence-based research, um, in the body that they have now, right? We are we are really, really keen on supporting folks in whatever their goals are for birth and postpartum, 
without having to change who they are, without having to morph their body. There's so much pressure on uh, fat folks in fertility, you know, getting pregnant to lose weight in order to be um, to be the quote unquote right size, you know, to have a baby. And I won't get into that because that's uh, Nicola Salmon. If you don't follow her um, for fat positive fertility, that's her area of specialty. So go follow her. Um, yeah. And, and Nicola was on the podcast too. So there's an episode. I'll link to it actually in the show notes. Yeah. We're gatekeeping, right? Fertility and we we um we require or request that fat folks change their bodies so much in pregnancy that they don't gain too much weight that they you know stay active that they do all these things right so our goal at bfp is to support support uh fat folks in the body that they have now and how do we get them through pregnancy birth and postpartum in the most you know confident empowered um care caring you know respectful way that we can um and and provide the things that they need to birth um you know in the body that they have now yeah oh my gosh that's amazing and we're gonna go into like what exactly is a birth doula we'll talk about all that but before that i'm so curious about your journey with the word fat because i imagine it probably led you to the work that you do so take us through that yeah so um i would say probably about oh gosh it's 2023 now so probably about 10 10 or so years ago i started my journey um to eating disorder recovery and that kind of led me to um some anti-diet nutritionists um started getting comfortable with what does it look like to not be on a diet anymore as many people i'm sure who are listening who i work with right um if you're comfortable with the word fat, you usually have gotten to a point where you're like, I'm done with this world. Um, and so, you know, that led to therapy that led to, um, you know, some some programming, some some help, some support to get through that. And in that journey, I found fat liberation, the, the frameworks of fat liberation, of health at every size, of body liberation, um, and started kind of just realizing what a crock all of the things that I had believed about my own fat body, right? Um, and then I went to grad school and I um, was getting my master's in adult education. And I was focusing specifically on um, education around pregnancy. I'd always kind of been fascinated in birth, but didn't really know where it was going to go. Um, and then I happened to get pregnant in grad school. And so then my entire world became consumed um, on all things birth. And so those worlds kind of melded. Um, my kind of fat liberation journey melded with my own experience of birth and then this education piece. Um, and I really just got to a point where I thought, you know, I want to have a baby. I want, I am having this baby. And the world is telling me that I shouldn't be having it in this body. And I got to a point where I just said, no, like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let that be my story anymore. Um, and I just got really comfortable with the word fat, seeing it in, you know, in uh, articles and journals and listening to it. And it just was like, you know what, I'm going to stop being ashamed of this word. I'm going to stop um, hating this word, right? I am fat. That is a really accurate descriptor of my body. Um, and then once I started calling myself fat, it just became this really kind of almost empowering, positive thing. Um, 
that took away so much shame and, you know, guilt and uh, self-loathing that I had attached to this stupid little word, right? That was just a, just a descriptor. So yeah, my world's kind of all collided. And then, and then, um, and then, yeah, I just started calling myself fat and it helped a lot in my pregnancy journey too. I was really, I'm curious. That's exactly what I was wondering was that this all was happening at the same time. And how did that impact your pregnancy experience? Yeah, so I was able to um, use the word fat in a very um, commanding way because when I talked to my care providers, you know, I would tell them, you know, when I interviewed care providers specifically, I would tell them, listen, I am a fat person and I am looking for someone who is not going to try and change that as I move through pregnancy. I am looking for someone who is going to support me without suggesting weight loss, without, you know, fear mongering me about the statistics statistics of my chances of X because of my BMI, right? I'm looking for someone who's going to support me and believe in my body's ability to birth. Um, and I was able to weed out a lot of people <laughs> very quickly. Um, what who, were people's responses? Like when you said that, were people like, like, how did, how did you know they weren't for mixture you? Mixture of like shock, you know, of some just like really not believing that I would be calling myself fat and like being okay with it. Um, you know, some folks came outright and said, you know, no, we have a BMI limit at this clinic. We don't support folks over a BMI of 40, of 35, of 33, whatever, you know, whatever the cutoffs are. Um, and so it was easy for me to be like, okay, you're not, you're not going to be my team. And, and thankfully I have the privilege. I had the privilege of um, having insurance that covered a variety of providers shop around. I had the time to call people. I had a job that was willing and flexible to let me take time off to interview people, right? Recognizing all of that privilege I hold as a white person who is employed, right? Um, so yeah, so I, I got shock. I got dismay. I got, well, I mean, you know, there are risks, so we don't really know how to support you. And then I found my care team and um, they were like, yeah, we, we support, you know, people in all bodies, right? There are some in elevated risks for being heavier, but we don't believe that that, you know, completely indicates or, um, you know, guarantees that you'll have any of these complications, um, you know, and I was lucky to have a really two wonderful, really easy, low risk pregnancies and births. So who knows if that story might have changed, you know, if I encountered some complications along the way, right? My midwives wouldn't um, have continued to see me if I had gestational diabetes um, or if I had a breech baby, I would have had to transfer to an OB, right? So there's lots of things that can come up for fat folks, for anybody really, but for fat folks too, that would risk them out of care down here. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a delicate balance but yeah finally just was really honest with the care team and they and they agreed back that they would care for me and the body I had now and and they did yeah that's amazing oh I'm so glad you experienced that and then so you had midwives you had a midwife birth would I say midwife assisted birth I don't know the terminology uh, I had a, I had a I had a home birth I had two home births with a midwife present okay cool and doulas Oh, and you had doulas too. I was going to say, because how did you know about birth doulas? Because that's something that's still not super, super well known. So 
Do you want to start there and tell us maybe like what the difference is between a midwife and a doula? Yeah, yeah, yeah you bet. So um, a doula is a person who is um, available to provide uh, physical, mental, emotional support to a birthing person and their support partner or partners um, throughout the process. So traditionally, it includes um, several prenatal appointments to get to know folks, um, assistance, continuous assistance throughout the entire birth, um, immediate postpartum support, and then sometimes additional postpartum support depending on what um, you know the, the family wants. So a doula is really meant to help you um, hold space for you to make decisions, um, provide comfort measures and techniques to help you get through labor, um, keep you grounded, create a calm environment, um, support your partner, um, and then help um, kind of digest language that you may not understand from care providers. It feels like it's very much about the birthing person as opposed to perhaps more medical um, environment, which would be around like often the baby first kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So midwives, midwives are there to secure the medical safety of the health and wellness of the birthing person and their child. Um, so they're really focused on, you know, the, you know, the, the actual act of labor progressing, the actual act of birth, right? They do obviously prenatal uh, checks as well, right? They're going to check baby to make sure everything's going well, check in on the parent. Um, but it, it's really focused, yeah, on directly on the health. Midwives in the States sometimes will also expand that to the kind of holistic care of social emotional you know mental well-being as well um but yeah doulas are really focused on kind of that that um physical mental emotional support throughout labor and postpartum and midwives are midwives and ob's you know obstetricians are also focused on the medical side of things so we are not doulas are not licensed um doulas in the united states don't have any sort of professional um requirement to call themselves doulas there are licensing agencies but um you can it's not a regulated field um whereas obviously there are very strict regulations for midwives and and ob's in the states that's interesting and it's similar to coaching like therapy if you're a therapist it's like deeply regulated coaching i don't i'm curious i'm just gonna ask because i know in the coaching world this is this is one of the challenges is that anyone can call themselves a coach and therefore you get a lot of people who just decide one day to be coaches and they are not trained and things do not go well so is it the same with doulas yeah okay yeah anyone can call themselves a doula like i said there are accrediting bodies there are organizations that certify you as a doula and provide some sort of um, certificate but in the grand scheme of things like it doesn't really mean anything because they're not like federally regulated or you know over there's no oversight um but again that also leads into like questions around well, what legitimizes a certification? What legitimizes a profession, right? And most of those organizations subscribe to or in some way, you know, uphold white supremacy and hierarchy, right? And and so um, lots of people will not certify because they don't believe in those things, not because they don't believe in the value of being educated as a doula. So um, you'll find quite a variety of, you know, opinions of training of, you know, um, educating ourselves in this world. But yeah. So what should people look for then if they're wanting to hire a doula? What are some of the questions? Maybe they should, maybe it's like, what questions should they ask themselves first? Yeah, I mean, right? I think, yeah, that while we're on the topic of certification, right, asking yourself if that does really matter to you because there 
are definitely ways that you can find out, you know, if people are certified. The biggest body down here is DONA. That's uh, the, one of the biggest uh, accrediting bodies. Some folks are really adamant that people have X years of training, X years of um, X number of births, you know, X certificates. So asking yourself what makes you feel the most comfortable? Is it a piece of paper saying that they're certified or is it, you know, your encounter with them? Is it your vibe? Is it, you know, how you connect with the person, um, their, you know, anecdotal stories of past births, um, you know, your trust in that person, right? A lot of, you're inviting someone into a very intimate Art, you know, intimate and vulnerable um, thing. So making sure experience, so making sure you're comfortable with them, right? I think would be first and foremost that you feel like they're going to trust your your body, your autonomy, your decision making, um, right? That they're going to add to your experience, not detract from it. So uh, asking yourself what's the most, the, what's the thing you value the most in in your birth experience, I think is probably going to give you the best start in finding someone who clicks with you. Yeah, beautifully said. So when did you decide to start Big Fat Pregnancy? What led to the creation of this? Yeah, so I would say 2020, um, 20, end of 2019, 2020, right before the pandemic hit, um, I had finished my graduate program and I was like, okay, I'm going to teach people about um, childbirth because most of the childbirth classes down here are very sit and get and they're just kind of... Um, I would say they're somewhat educational, but they don't include principles of adult learning. They don't include um, the parents-to-be, you know, the family-to-be. Um, some of them are not very inclusive to different family structures, to fat bodies, to, um, you know, uh you know, non-binary folks, trans folks, right? There's there there can be a lot of exclusion. I live in close to Seattle, Washington, so we we have I would say a lot of really great childbirth education classes. But I was like, I'm gonna get in this. I'm gonna teach folks in an adult education way. Um, this is gonna be great. And then the pandemic hit, and I was like, okay, maybe not the greatest time for me to start in person business. <laughs> yeah, and how you had just had your first child? Yeah, my first, yeah, I started in 2020. My first child was uh, all about eight months, nine months old. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So pandemic, oh my gosh. So yeah. So pandemic hit. And yeah. yeah. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to take a beat. Like I need to, I need to pause. This is maybe not what I want to do right now. So I started Big Fat Pregnancy as like an Instagram account, just like I can educate people without having to have classes. Um, I, you know, my personal life, I had found a job I really liked. I was like, okay, we'll just do this as a hobby. Um, so I started posting content content just about being fat, about being fat and pregnant, um, resources, you know, videos. Um, I started doing provider workshops. So how to be more fat positive if you're like a chiropractor, a, a massage therapist, a midwife. Um, and then it kind of morphed into, no, I, I want to be in, in this space. Um, I, I really do. So as the pandemic loomed and didn't seem to have an end in sight, I thought, okay, this can't stop me. People are still having babies. Like we got to figure this out. Um, so then I, I did go through a doula training, um, birth advocacy, uh, doula trainings, and um, started seeing clients um, in the last in the last year. Or so wow! And how's it been? What's the learning curve been like? 
You know, it's it's great. So alongside alongside Adula, um, another part of our business is that um, Big Five Pregnancy also offers what we call birth mentoring, which is coaching basically for um, fat folks who are either trying to get pregnant, who are um, going through pregnancy, who just need support with like, okay, my doctor said this, and I don't even know where to start in order in order to talk to them about something, or my family member is doing this really gross fat phobic thing, and I need some support like talking through it. So a lot of my work in the beginning was just virtual appointments, individually talking to folks, dealing with these situations as they came up in pregnancy. And that kind of turned into like long-term coaching, like with people throughout their pregnancy, kind of guiding them through, these are the questions we can ask, let's do some birth planning. Um, So that learning curve alongside the doula world really helped me get an insight into what my clients were facing from their providers and their family members and the external world world, you know, as fat people getting pregnant and then coupling that with the birth experience. Um, you know, there's no birth that is the same, even if the mechanics of it are the same. Um, and so I think I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly um, discovering new ways to physically support clients, you know, um, with different comfort measures, with different tools that are adapted for fat bodies. That's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times as a tangent, a lot of times the the equipment that folks have in a birthing suite or in a hospital um, aren't adapted for folks over a certain weight. Um, it's usually pretty low, like 250 pounds, and that doesn't really encompass a, a lot of folks. So um, my partner and I, Emily, we bring um, our own kind of toolkit with us to birth. So we have um, a birthing stool that goes up to 750 pounds. We have um, um, some rebozo type material. Um, it's a me- traditional Mexican uh, cloth and way of working with someone to support their support them during um, pregnancy for comfort measures. So we have one that is um, specifically like designed for um, extra weight. Um, and we do a lot of positioning that is different for people in fat body. So if you've ever seen like a sheet of, you know, pregnancy positions, a lot of them are really inaccessible to people who are fat, people who have chronic illness, people who have connective tissue disorders, uh, you know, people who have any sort of chronic pain. Um, there's a lot of them like on all fours. Um, and so we bring like knee pads because being kneeling on a you know, hard floor while you're pregnant, right? Um, so it's just things like that. We're trying to always think about how can we modify the environment that someone's giving birth in to make it more comfortable because when you're more comfortable and you have less physical pain, you're not focusing on that as much and you can work on moving through contractions and um, getting that oxytocin flowing to to help you with the delivery of your baby versus focusing on a pain that's not even connected to your birth. Um, you know, that's what we're trying to eliminate. Yeah, birth doesn't need more pain. No, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> distract you, right? Yeah, so. Uh, I, you know, it's so interesting and until what you just said, I've never thought about and of course it makes sense. Why have I not thought about this? But the different positions, because, you know, when you watch birth on like a movie or something, I've always wondered, I'm like, how are their knees up by their ears? And like, you know, you've got the nurse on one side and the partner on the other side and they're pulling the legs back. I'm like, that uh, my body could not do that. Or, and on, I have, I just, I have a bad knee from an, a skiing accident. And like, I couldn't be on all fours in that way. And like, it really, I'm, it's just, 
it's so interesting. On one hand, Christina, I'm like, this is such common sense. And on the other hand, I'm like, but no one's doing it. Like, it's really still, why am I still shocked? Why am I still shocked that we don't think about fat bodies? <laughs> but yeah, right. And that's, and that's what, you know, Emily and I do, right, is that we work to, um, we, you know, we work obviously from a consent uh, framework. So we always ask permission before touching, before helping folks move. Right. But we're not afraid to touch fat bodies. Right. Like we're not afraid to get in there. Like if I have to lift up your belly fold in order to help you move your knee to be in the right position that's comfortable for you, like I'm going to do it. I'm going to hang on to your chub and we're going to get right. Like, so I, I want people to know that that's also a huge part of it is like being comfortable with someone touching your body and making sure that they're comfortable touching your body. That's another one you could add to the, to the doula list, right? Because I also know as someone who lives in a fat body and gave birth to both babies, well over 300 pounds, right? I know what it physically feels like in my fat body to not be comfortable because I couldn't find a comfortable position and I needed someone else to help me, right? I needed someone else to be there to support me. And knowing that the people who were in my birth area were comfortable touching my body and weren't, you know, I wasn't worried about them secretly being repulsed or judging me, right? Like I was like, okay, these people love me and they're here for me. They're here for my baby, right? Um, and that made a complete difference in my ability to be comfortable. So that's what we hope to give our clients is just that confidence and knowing that like their body is perfect the way it is. And we, you know, we value that and we believe in their ability to birth, you know, in that, in that body they have now, chub, no chub, you know, disabled, not disabled, right? We, we are there for, for our folks to try and make it as, as enjoyable as an experience as possible. Cause birth can be enjoyable, can be wonderful. And we want to make sure that there's no extra fat phobic or systemic fat phobia that is making that unattainable for our clients oh god or bless reduce you. it as much as possible right <laughs> like i'm just like oh bless you for that i'm like can i get a doula for every medical appointment i go to and like that's actually something we do we um we go to appointments with clients if they need us to i'll facetime in for clients because just having a third person there um, who knows about the medical system can make a huge difference in the way that fat people are treated when they have those appointments. Um, just recording them, even just saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to record this conversation because I have a hard time remembering, you know, things or I do better listening to stuff back. You know, that will even change how providers talk to you, unfortunately. When I they know, it's true. When they know they're going to be held accountable for their words because that's my that was my as soon as you were talking I was like oh I'm so curious about you being in conflict or not you maybe but like diet culture showing up all the all the bullshit around you know medical stuff around fat bodies and there being a conflict between perhaps your clients values and how they want to live and what they're hearing from their doctor and what they're saying so how how does how does that work? That happens all the time, unfortunately. I mean, that's why I still have a job. <laughs> I hope one day that I don't need to be, you know, focused on this. But um, I mean, I think one of the clearest examples I can think of is, you know, around the the topic of gaining weight in pregnancy, right? Um, a lot of my clients will be told that there's a very specific number of pounds that they need to make sure that they stay within, right? And a lot of my clients like aren't even weighing themselves, right? Because that's harmful for them or they've just not something they do 
ever or anymore, right? Um, and so for them to be told that there's a specific weight that they have to stay within, um, it's, it's really difficult. You know, a lot of my clients will advocate for, I don't want to be weighed, right? Like weight is not something that I need to know. And you can do that either by not seeing the scale directly. You know, you can ask to turn around. You can ask not to be weighed. Um, but if you're going the traditional path of an obstetrician, you know, connected to a hospital system, it's pretty hard it's pretty hard to get around that. They are really, really dead set on weighing you. So it takes a lot of pushback. It takes a lot of, um, you know, specific um, conversations around there are other ways to measure my health. And I'd like to focus on those, you know, during my pregnancy. Um, you know, they say, well, we have to weigh you in order to make sure that we know the baby's growing. Well, there's other ways to do that. We can measure fundal height, which is the distance from the top of your top of your uterus, bottom of your uterus. I can never remember. Um, down, you know, down to your pubic bone, right? And we can we can see growth that way. Um, you know, we can listen to baby. Obviously, we have growth scans, which that's another conversation. Um, but, you know, I think that it, it takes a lot of follow-up and a lot of advocacy and a lot of providing our own research, which sucks because it should just be, hey, I don't like this. Please don't do it. <laughs> and that should be the end of the conversation. But it's not. We have to come back usually with resources and, you know, sometimes therapist notes, you know, saying this is detrimental to my health. So, you know, there's a lot that we can we can do to push back. Um, and then some providers are like, yeah, that's fine. I don't ever weigh my clients. <laughs> and you're like, great. Okay. Conversation over. Um, but yeah, that specific, that specific pregnancy weight gain is a really big, um, really big topic for my clients. Um, one of my favorite facts that I love um, is that, that also infuriates me, is that the recommend the recommended weight gain for for fat folks during pregnancy is not enough to support the basic like life giving cr human creating weight so what i mean by that is if you total up like placenta the fact that your blood doubles in volume the weight of the baby itself the weight you do need to gain in order to accurately you know adequately feed your body it is 10 to 15 pounds heavier at minimum than the recommendation from the American College of, of, of Gynecology. Yeah. So that that one alone gets me gets me quite quite uh, oh, I had a friend, one of my few, few fat friends that I've had locally. I now have, you know, international fat friends, but locally who I was close with as she went through her pregnancy. I remember, it's funny, it's been, it's years now, maybe seven years ago or so. But I remember her telling me that her, she was so, she was, this is before either of us had kind of found fat liberation and we were having lunch and she was so happy. She goes, I just came from my doctor's appointment and I am so glad because I haven't gained a pound. And she was probably about halfway through her pregnancy at this point when there was, I, I would imagine, kind of quote unquote, supposed to be a lot of weight gain because her doctor had told her, you don't get to gain a single pound in your pregnancy. And so she got the, there, there, good, good, good patient pat on the head, good fat person. And I was, I remember sitting there going, I, and I didn't really question it too much because I was like, well, I guess this is just our, what happens if we're fat is we don't, get to gain weight, which which means then that they're actively losing weight during pregnancy. And I, and the, but I remember thinking, is that okay? Is that okay? No, super unethical. 
Hello, it's Sophia, and I'm gently interrupting myself to let you know that I secretly recorded video content with almost all of the first 55 guests of the Fat Joy podcast, and I'm releasing it to anyone who becomes a subscriber to my new Substack newsletter. So you want to know what each guest is scared of or what they'd put on a billboard or what they'd tell their younger self? Become a subscriber of the newsletter at fatjoy.substack.com and you can find out. You can become a subscriber for free. And if you'd like to help me keep making the podcast, you can become a paid subscriber for $5 a month. You're going to get access to the bonus videos either way, but paid subscribers will be getting additional bonus content on top of those videos. However you choose to become a subscriber, please know how grateful I am that you're here and supporting, bringing more fat joy into the world. Okay, back to the episode. Enjoy. Right. But this is like this, this was the meth. This is the messaging that fat people get. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you the number of clients that I've had who have had, you know, either severe nausea or, you know, vomiting um, because of pregnancy, right. For either short or extended periods of time who as a result lost weight and were congratulated on that weight loss when the root of it was so, so damaging, right? Like they needed to be they needed to be helped. They needed anti-nausea medication. They needed, right? No, they needed support with what kind of foods maybe would help settle their stomach with when to eat, you know, to try and mitigate that, right? To what pairings could help mitigate that. Um, and instead they were given no questions, no questions about what's going on. Just, oh, good job losing weight. And then like move on, right? So And it just it feels like such an extra vulnerable time for power dynamics to come into play because of course people are worried about the health of their baby. And so that is the ultimate carrot for whatever or power structure. Right. Because of course you're like, I will do whatever it takes to take care of my child. And unfortunately, we do. We see that. We see providers use that in order to get what they want or what the hospital policy, quote unquote policy, which is really just preference, right? It's not law. There's nothing that says hospital policy is law, right? You're right. We do treat it as law, though. Oh, my God. You're making me think of so many, so many things. Yeah. But yeah, often, you know, providers will say, well, if you don't have, not often, I shouldn't say often for my clients, it's often because they're in these situations. But, you know, if you don't, if you don't um, have an induction by this amount of time, you double your risk of stillbirth. And it's like, well, but what you're not, because you're fat, right? Because you're, well, what you're neglecting to mention is that the risk of stillbirth goes from like 0.01 to like 0.02%. Oh my gosh. Is it yeah, it's really low. I don't know if those are the exact numbers, like point point zero something. And it, it it doubles. Yes, they are correct. It doubles. But it's still an incredibly small number. And that number does go up by BMI category, right? We we do acknowledge that. But we also don't know why. We because no research study takes into consideration all of the factors could be influencing, right? They don't look at socioeconomic status. They don't look at access. They don't look at racism in the medical system, right? There's a lot of things that they're not factoring in to get those statistics. Um, 
Yeah. And, and, and so we fear monger fat folks often into having procedures or inducing or interventions without giving them the full, you know, the full range of options. And this happens for straight sized folks too, right? We're given the, like, what happens if you don't do this? Uh, but we're not given the alternatives. We're not given, okay, well, what happens if I wait? What happens if I do nothing? What happens, you know, we aren't given the the, re- the benefits and risks of all options on the table. And to me, that's not informed consent. You know, folks are not able to ad- accurately and adequately make decisions about the health of their baby and themselves if they're not given all of the options. Right. And so if you're there as a doula in your role, you would say, and here are some other things to think about. Like, what's how do you do? What do you do in that? Yeah, it depends on the situation, um, right? If we're if we're in like a appointment, right? I will, yeah. It, it, usually, when I establish care with a client, we will come up with a code word or a code look or something that they can shoot me quickly um, if they need me to step in or if they want me to step in if they're not comfortable doing it themselves. I have lots of clients who want to advocate for themselves who you two just want, you know, my my background support. And then I have other clients who aren't comfortable, right? So it depends on what we've established, you know, but if it is a client who wants me to step in and they've said the code word or given me the look, right? Then yeah, it's usually I try and do it in a very collaborative way of like, oh, and also, you know, I've heard, I've read this research that I just read, right? Whatever can gently broach the subject, you know, says, says this, can you talk about the options and risks, right? For this, um, sometimes in labor and delivery, it has to be a bit more forceful because um, laboring person might be completely focused on laboring and their support, their support person might be like, I, can't, I don't remember. I don't know what, I don't know what to do. Right. And so then providing them information can be helpful. And sometimes it's as simple as, as, you know, Hey doctor, can you give my clients five minutes to discuss this in private? Right. Sometimes it's just pausing. Um, I would say that pregnancy, labor and delivery, we often use time as a weapon, right? You know, Oh, we have to make this decision right now. Baby needs to get out. Right. When in reality, the, the, the actual occurrence of true emergency sections, right? True emergencies in birth is a lot lower than we think because we're often told that it's like you need to make a decision when most of the time we have two to five minutes to talk about it, to, you know, to come up with questions, right? The Western medical system is amazing, right? It exists for a reason. We need emergent care sometimes. We need these life-saving um, options, but when folks aren't given the full spectrum of options and not given the time to think about it, um, it's like I said, it's really not informed consent. No. And that starts to play into power dynamics. And I imagine there's a lot of things related to bias and racism and all these types of things that start to show up. Yeah, because we make assumptions about someone's ability, their their physical ability, their mental ability to comprehend things. They're, you know, based on what they look like or, you know, what they've presented to us throughout pregnancy, right? Of course, they're making snap judgments. They're making judgments based on what they feel is their professional expertise. But over time, I do believe that, right, it can be clouded. It can be, we can get jaded. We can get, you know, pulled into the system, the medical industrial complex, right? Where we stop questioning these things. We stop, you know, we stop looking at our patients as individuals. And case in point, oftentimes in the hospital, they'll refer to you as your room number and not your name. 
because they're they're de they're de you know humanizing to to compartmentalize and to you know see you as part of the system so and that seems like a bleak outlook but you know i think that but this is not all providers obviously but you know when we talk about the the cases where my my clients are really encountering that pushback right it's it's because of that power i am the doctor you will do what i say i believe this about your fat body um so i i believe that my clients should at least have the chance to ask their questions and to you know to to move through the decision making process in a way that makes them feel cared for and respected because at the end of the day even if we have interventions even if we have birth plans that don't go our way if we feel cared for and respected in our ability to make our own decisions then it still can be looked at as a positive experience even when things don't go our way yeah, absolutely. Rita Bushnell talks a lot about that in um, Transformed by Birth. I think that's the title. Um, but it's it's a great read for new parents, um, parents-to-be. It talks a lot about the kind of conflicts of of our belief systems um, between like, you know, Mother Nature. She uses storytelling a lot. Mother Nature, like our, our Western views of, you know, medicine. So um, it talks a lot about that conflict and slowing things down is one of the number one ways a doula can intervene. Yeah. Can I ask a gossipy question? Cause I'm just dying to know, have you had to like, cause I, I know a lot of doctors and I know a lot of doctor egos, like, have you had to really like go up against like, as in maybe even like, be like, no, like yell at doctors. No, thankfully not. I, I have not, but I know other doulas who have, and I know. Cause I can just imagine that. Yeah, there, it can get tense. Um, you know, there are definite times when I've had doulas say, like, you know, I've heard doula stories of like, no, you need to leave the room now, right? Like, no, we're not doing this right now. Um, but I, I would say, thankfully, I feel like the environment around here is a little bit more collaborative. Um, but again, I'm, it, I don't, I'm not in every birth and I don't know every doula. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are definite examples of that for sure, but. I want a movie made from about doula experiences. I just imagine them as like champions for the marginalized, you know? Yeah, it depends. You know, I would say that that's one of the biggest, I would say, like areas for work in the field of, of doula, as most fields, right? Is that many folks believe that a doula's job is to help advocate on the behalf of their patients. And many doulas believe that that's not their job, that they're, they're just there to support the birthing person physically, you know, physically, um, or, you know, emotionally, but that doesn't mean stepping in on their behalf. Um, which is why I, you know, we try at Big Fat Pregnancy to be really clear that like, we believe in advocacy on behalf of our client if that's something they're comfortable with and if they agree to us doing it for them, right? I'm never going to step in if my client's like, no, don't, I don't want you, you know, right? I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be that, but I, I, there are instances where I will look at my client and I will be like, you know, something needs to be said, right? And they'll kind of give me permission to go forward. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to detangle your own emotions. <laughs> I'm just, I was just thinking right now I would be a terrible doula. <laughs> I'd be like, no, I don't care what you say. It takes a lot of practice, but right, I am I am there for my client, right? I am not there to fight the doctor. I'm not there to fight my own fight. You know, I'm not there to to make things harder for my client, right? So sometimes that does mean collaboration, even when you're biting your tongue, right? Sometimes that does mean you see things happen and you're like, oh God, you know, it just like gets under your skin. But your client, your client is fine with it, right? And so that also comes into play of like, I have to res 
respect the wishes of my clients, even if that means sometimes I would I would want to say something, but maybe they wouldn't. And it also can happen where they want to say something and I don't, right? Because I am a fat person who still struggles with internalized fat phobia and the power dynamics of the doctor still get to me, right? So there's a lot of work that, you know, I do as a doula personally to to reflect and to um, continue self-work to make sure that I can, you know, show up for my clients in that in that way. Because it's hard. It's hard as a fellow fat person in the room. But I think that is also the strength of our, you know, practice and the strength of what helps my clients through is that it is a fellow fat person next to them saying, no, this person demands to be treated with respect. And I'm a fat person and I'm going to stand up to you, right? There, there's some power power in in that empowerment in that as well. So well said. You had mentioned that you also work quite a bit with disabled and queer pregnancies as well. Yeah, yeah. somehow somehow our our identity of being fat has also overlapped with queer folks and um with disabled folks um specifically um having folks with, you know, connective um tissue disorders or um hypermobility or um just physical limitations some folks who are chronically ill. Um so a lot of my birth mentoring is is working with folks and talking them through, you know, different testing options, different procedures, different um you know, different again movement, you know, options um, to make sure that they can physically, you know, be comfortable and be respected. And right, we're, we're multifaceted people, we hold many identities at once. So none of my clients are just fat, right? Usually, there's a multitude of other identities that we carry through. So yeah, just trying to be really respectful of, of how a person needs to be treated. Um, you know, specifically, there's a lot of, there's a lot of correcting of pronouns, there's a lot of um, trying to make sure that we're not, you know, solely going with the mama and breastfeeding and, you know, options that don't always fit my clients. So being really clear about that. Um, I have pronoun pins that I usually provide for clients if they want them. Um, we can put signs on the door that, you know, has pictures and names and pronouns. You know, we can remind folks what's going on. Um, we try and use inclusive language around our providers so that they, you know, we can set the example that they know um, how our clients, you know, prefer to be referred to. Um, and then, you know, we're learning so much about the dynamics between queer folks between infertility between the intersections of fatness the intersections of racism so it's just a constant learning process for us to make sure that we are educated so that we can support and advocate you know for our clients yeah wow even just you saying there are pronoun name or pronoun pins and i can put things on the door so the healthcare providers know like that again, this is one of those seemingly really simple things that has a huge, huge impact on how a patient would feel, how someone I mean, would yeah, feel. I mean, being constantly misgendered over the course of 10 to 30 hours, right? That doesn't, doesn't feel good. <laughs> and so, right. Yeah. It's simple things, simple things that we can do to, you know, try and try and make it a little bit easier for our clients. And, you know, constantly we have uh, folks who are, you know, uh, queer specifically if they're both women um, and uh, the nurses may assume that the partner is just a friend 
right? And so they'll say, oh, mama, what do you want? Mama, what do you want? And it's like, well, also there's another person in the room who's very integral to the support of this person. So, you know, establishing what these people mean to each other, right? Making sure that the birth birthing partner is included or partners. Sometimes we have more than one, um, right? Family structures don't have to be a mom and a dad, right? And, and it's crazy to me how I still encounter that, right? That is still the baseline assumption. And so doing everything we can to make sure that people know that, you know, there's a variety of family structures, a variety of preferred terminology for body parts. Um, you know, there's there's lots of ways we can we can model that for providers. Sometimes they they catch on and sometimes they don't. Sometimes we have to be more explicit of, you know, excuse me, they, you know, they use they, them pronouns or excuse me, you know, they don't want any males present in the room or, you know, whatever the case may be, whatever, whatever makes a family more comfortable. Yeah, right. Wow. It's so interesting. And that you do all of this, especially if it's in kind of the labor and delivery process itself, the active labor, you do this in such a chaotic environment. Yeah, sometimes sometimes birth can be really calm and and wonderful, and we don't, you know, we're Why in our. Why don't we see that? I don't know if I've ever seen a calm because it's not how it's portrayed in the media. So yeah, I mean, and that's that's I do a lot of work with clients around the mental, like the mental preparation for birth. That like we don't have to be afraid of birth, right? We don't have to be afraid of the process. It doesn't have to be this like horrible, painful, traumatic thing that is portrayed in 99% of media, right? Like um, we can have very enjoyable experiences. Will there be pain and discomfort? Likely. I mean, I don't know many people who've gone through the process who wouldn't say that there was some discomfort or pain. But when we reimagine that that pain has purpose and that we are prepared, right? We are mentally, physically prepared to do this, right? We are capable of doing this. When you truly believe that, I think it changes the whole experience. It can change the whole experience. And there's nothing wrong with all of the wonderful, lovely pain interventions, you know, if you do need them, if you do choose them, that's totally okay too. But even with or without unmedicated, medicated, pelvic birth, cesarean, we can have, we can still impact the environment to be the most conducive to an enjoyable experience, um, even if things don't go, quote unquote, according to plan, right? But in birth, they rarely do. So, you know, usually we focus on dim lighting, soft voices, um, comfortable clothes, comfortable blankets. Um, for my, for my, um, for my plus size clients, there's a lot of, um, discomfort in the uh, continuous fetal monitoring. So it's usually two bands that have like this big disc and then wires and they're usually attached around the belly. And so this is so we can get a continuous heart rate and, and uh, monitoring of baby. Um, they're not made for fat people. They're really uncomfortable. They're really tight. Even the largest sizes can be really um, constricting and they can pinch and they slip up, they slip down. People are constantly having to fiddle with them. There's beeping, right? So if possible, I suggest for a lot of my clients, if they can have not continuous monitoring, if they can have um, a Doppler or um, it's an instrument they use to hear the baby's heart rate, um, just not all the time. Um, that can really help. There's also a specific type of monitoring system. Of course, I forget the name right now. Um, Navira or something like that. I'll get it for you. But it's, it's a wireless, 
um, continuous monitoring system that just sits on the front of the belly and it's attached by tape. Um, it's waterproof. It can go in the shower. It can go in the tub. And most hospitals can provide it. They just don't. So, you know, there's there's things that we can also ask for to make that environment more comfortable. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what we that's what we try to achieve. And we never see that portrayed. We never or we see the opposite, which is like which is funny because I have my lights up still. But like twinkle lights and like dark and someone leaning over a tub and like totally serene. Right. We either see either or and it's rarely it's rarely all or nothing. You know, either way, the screaming stirrup, you know, on their back or this like, you know, uh, sincere picture of calm. It's rarely ever both of those. Uh, or only those, right? It it it's the continuum, like everything else in our life. It's a spectrum, right? So. Totally. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think the only t- I remember of my former sister in law, so the, the from a previous marriage. I remember her saying, I was talking to her about her birth, and she said, you know, I just had this moment. She did a home birth in a tub, and she said, I just had this moment where I realized I am not in control anymore. And she said, I just surrendered to my body being the animal it needed to be in that moment. And I had never heard this again. This is probably like 15 years ago now, and I had never heard anything like that before and I was just like you are like so like zen above me right now like it was just I thought oh I yeah never and it was so cool to to know that that was an alternative or another way of birthing so at that point I hadn't seen anything other than this the screaming emergency kind of situation so yeah, yeah. And, it, and it can be right it can be that and what we, what I do a lot of, um, when I talk to my clients, one of the things we talk about is, you know, that mental preparation, right? Because we do have to do some preparation because surrendering, right, is for some the goal, right? Like that's what allows them to get through the you know, the hardest, most difficult, most intense parts of of childbirth. But if we think about that act alone, right, that's a privileged thing to be able to do. If you have body trauma, if you are not comfortable in your own body, if you are disabled and maybe don't have a physical connection to every part of your body, right? If you have mental blocks around connecting with your body, right? Birth can be very triggering, right? And the the physical sensations of birth can be very re-triggering for people who've experienced trauma. And so thinking about Yes, that is the goal, right? I would describe that both of my births, I would describe them like you just described them, but that's not accessible for everybody. So we need to figure out a way for our clients to get there as much as they can, but in a way that's comfortable for them, right? Do we achieve that all the time? No, but being aware of of trying to create a trusting relationship with our clients so they can talk to us about that kind of stuff so we know what might come up, Um you know, one of the one of the biggest things is that the the act of transitioning, which is when baby goes from descending down pelvis to actually getting ready to you know come come out. It's one of the most intense periods of childbirth for all people. I would say would describe that as the most intense. Intense because of like 
feeling? Like it feels intense? I would say, yeah, it depends on the person. Some people describe it as painful, intense, lots of pressure, right? But the the physical sensation, the act of transitioning for a lot of people can be a a triggering feeling, a triggering body feeling. So if I know, if we know that a client has had past, um, you know, uh, experiences, um, any sort of sexual assault, any sort of, you know, stuff like that, we can talk about that ahead of time. And we can talk about like, this may be a part in birth where it is very difficult for you to be out of your body. Um, and so let's talk about affirmations. Let's talk about, um, guided meditations. If you're into that thing, let's talk about journaling. Let's talk about birth art. You know, let's talk about something to kind of prepare your mind for that, um, transition and that, that act of birth. So if we know those things about our clients, if we've created a relationship where they feel comfortable sharing, we can help folks, you know, be aware that these body sensations might prohibit them from getting to that surrendering part if they're not aware of what's coming you know and it's hard if you've never done it before it's like i don't how do i know what it's gonna feel like right so yeah someone who's aware of that can be really helpful or even in the moment if they're like ah you know i'm being triggered or something's happening and i don't like it right the point the hope of a doula is to be there you know to either support their partner or partners if they're supporting them um, you know, through it or to be able to provide some sort of comforting touch or statement or something that helps bring them back to, no, we're not in that moment. We're here. Right. Right. You've got me thinking so much about safety as kind of a baseline for so much of this, like as someone myself. So I've been pregnant, but I've never given birth. I had a miscarriage and I've also had an abortion. And um, it's very, and now as I'm going through different gynecological processes and tests because of endometriosis, I have, I'm so aware every time I get like, I mean, I'm now kind of used to the whole like transvaginal ultrasound, but in a couple of weeks, I've got to go in for one of those like things where they're going to go into my uterus and like scrape the cells, just make sure I don't have cancer. And I've had it done before and it was horrible. And it brought back a lot of the trauma connected to when I had an abortion. And it was just like, I'm just thinking about that. And then I'm like, oh my God, how, how would I be able to hold all of that if I like, and going through like a birth process, which I'm, I'm now very past. I'm not, I'm way too old and not interested in having my own child at this point. But like, I'm just, when you said like that moment of transition, I could feel, even just you saying that I could feel my whole body start to be like, oh my God. And like, and I'm very much at a distance from it. And so, yeah, the amount of, I'm just real, I think what I'm trying to say very inarticulately is I'm really feeling in this moment what a gift it would be to have someone who can be with, if it was me, be with me in all of like my past rushing into the present, being freaked out, all the uncertainty, all the unsafety on top of let's bring in like the systemic oppression of living in a marginalized body and people in the room who probably like actively disdain who I am. Like, like there's just so much fucking happening, Christina. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm like getting stressed out as I'm talking about it. I'm like, there there can be, there can be a lot going on. Right. And that's, that's where we work really hard to understand, you know, pre-birth, what gives you, what, what helps you feel what helps you feel grounded? What what does your partner do that supports you that helps you feel that way, right? Because then we, as the person who's not actively experiencing the birth, can remind them. Yeah, because in the moment, it, I imagine it would just be gone. Yeah, what we, we call it labor land. And it's a 
the, it's a certain part in labor where you do really go inward, right? You, you can't, you can't really focus on anything that's going on around you. And, uh, studies have shown that like when the chemicals that are firing in our brain and our bodies during this time, when we experience labor land, we do actually like lose some connection to like speech and like processing, right? Like the chemical is not like you're not going to be able to speak. I don't want to freak people out, but like the chemicals in our brain and our bodies are so focused on the act of getting this baby out that we are not functioning at a level where making super intense decisions quickly or communicating all of our needs effectively, right, are going to be the most available to us. So having people around us who know what those needs and desires are to begin with helps the process so much. Oh, I love it so much. I want a life doula. (laughs) Like, oh, I can just imagine, like, right now, my life doula would come and, like, massage my soldiers. Yeah, right? (laughs) Hey, it's helpful in all sorts of situations. I've used my doula skills across the the spectrum of conflict and... and, uh, I can imagine. (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. Oh, the work you do is so cool. I'm so glad to talk to you about this because I really, I didn't really know much. I knew about midwives, but I didn't really know that much about birth doulas. This is so, so fascinating. I, I'm curious about, and we talked a little bit on this, and I, this definitely, um, I'm going to link to Nicholas Salmon's episode because we touched on this a little bit, but I just, the other part of this and what I really love about how you're saying things and how you've built your practice and positioned your business is that it really is taking into account the impact of marginalization, the barriers, the systemic barriers to healthcare. And one of the things that we've talked about is this idea as when fat people are refused care, such as being able to go through IVF, it's a form of eugenics. And I just, I want you to just wax poetic for a second on this because I don't think we can overstate the just the horror that this is, the body terrorism that this is. So, so yeah, share a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I 100% agree. I mean, in the States we have um, fertility clinics um, who will deny care to folks who will not help people get pregnant if they are over a certain BMI. Sometimes it's 35, sometimes it's 40, sometimes it's 42, but whatever the limit is, it's still a limit. And we're still saying, no, we don't think you should have a baby. And it's based on BMI, which we know is bullshit and trash. And that's been proven a million zillion times. And yet that's still okay. Yeah. And yeah, so it, it is right. The, the, the healthcare system is choosing who gets to be pregnant and who doesn't, right? And that also, right, it plays in, I won't get into this, but it plays into our current conversations about abortions in this state, right? Like we are choosing who who has the right and who doesn't have the right to continue or abort a pregnancy, right? And so um, it's dangerous and people make so little of a deal out of it and it blows my mind. Um, we also have the same um, similar processes in um, midwifery care here in the States. Individual midwifery clinics can choose to limit who they take on as clients based on BMI. So they can refuse service based on BMI. Um, and this means that a fat person would have to seek 
services from an obstetrician or in a hospital setting because we don't in the states we don't have obstetricians who do home births we don't have anything in the medical system that will allow folks to birth outside of the home with a provider unless they're having unless they have a midwife um we have what are called licensed midwives down here. So we have midwives who practice out of hospital. Um, they can be certified professional midwives or licensed midwives, and they practice out of hospital at freestanding birth centers or attending home births. And then we have certified professional midwives who operate inside of hospitals attached to hospital systems. So those are attached birthing centers or just midwifery units within hospital hospitals. So um, if you cannot find an LM or a CNM, uh, pardon me, a CPM who will do a home birth because of your BMI, your choices are an obstetrician or what we call an unassisted birth or a free birth, which is where folks can choose to birth at home um, or a place where they feel safe um, without a care provider present, right? So we are basically saying that you need to enter a system which you know will be dangerous, which has harmed you in the past, which will cause you many, many months and months of anxiety, if not harm and trauma afterwards, or you can choose to birth at home without a care provider, which you may not be comfortable with. You may be comfortable with, but chances are you don't you don't really want that as your first option. But it's better for some folks than dealing with the harm and trauma of laboring with a with a doctor. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's choosing who who gets to birth, how we get to birth, um, and yeah, where we feel where we feel safe is not taken into consideration and that's pretty pretty shitty <laughs> no and it's i just i still can't get over again i don't know why i'm so st stuck on it and surprised by it but that it's all based on bmi i mean it's not even like hey we did some blood work we've got some concerns like nothing it's like straight up bmi which is nothing it tells us nothing about people Yep. And there, there are some midwives who obviously, um, you know, won't have a BMI limit, but their practices or their um, threshold for risking clients out, which means they then would be transferred to an ops. They'd have to find an obstetrician that also um, removes them from the care of what they where they may feel safest or where they may be safest um, based on. Um, factors that may not be as explicitly fat phobic as BMI, but have underlying, um, you know, uh, tones of that. So, yeah, so it, it sucks because my experience could have been very different had I had, um, you know, complications or things that arose. Um, and I mean, I guess I almost did risk out of care. My my daughter was breech um, for a very long time, which means that her feet were down instead of her head down. In the States, we have almost virtually no providers who will deliver uh, feet down. They automatically consider it a C-section. Um, and so, you know, I had to do several things in order to try and get her to turn around so I could have a home birth, thankfully. We, we, we got there. Um, but if I wouldn't have, I would have had to automatically had a C-section, right? And then I would have been, you know, subject to all of the rules and regulations and fighting um, for, for, you know, in a hospital system. Yeah. Wow. Wow. A lot of work to be done. <laughs> there is. I'm just, I'm kind of, I kind of, you know, I get overwhelmed by it. How do, do you get overwhelmed by it? Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think as a fat person, 
who lives every day as a fat person still encountering systems like, you know, I'm not in the birth world myself personally anymore having children, um, but I'm in the medical system. And, you know, just the other day I went to a doctor's appointment and they, you know, did their normal check. And um, I don't, at this point, I don't choose to not be weighed anymore because it's just too much of a fight in my medical system. Um, and I care, I don't care anymore. So for me, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but the first thing the doctor said when I got into the room after the initial height, you know, check, all that fun stuff um, was, oh, congratulations on your weight loss. Oh, my God. And not a single question like, hey, it, what's been going on? Are you stressed? Are you sick? Is there anything happening? Yeah. So it's um, it's, you know, a prime example of we still deal with it every day, whether we're birthing or not. And uh, it does get overwhelming. And my clients give me so much hope um, and so much joy um, seeing folks who maybe without this fat liberation framework, without this realization that, you know, all of these things are based <laughs> in racism and white supremacy and sizeism and ableism and sexism, right? All the isms, right? That, that they are a wonderful human being and they have value and they're worthy, right? Seeing my clients go through that process and then in the end, you know, have this little human that is going to be taught these things going forward, right? Where they're breaking this cycle for their baby, right? For, for the generation to come. That gives me a lot of hope. That gives me a lot of hope. And I see my kids too. And I'm like, you know, my mom, my, my daughter will run up to me and say, mama, I love your fat belly. And she'll like rub her face in it. Right. And it's like, I can't ever, ever have thought of a time when I would have done that to mom. Right. You know, so, you know, it's just, it's that's that those kinds of things give me hope when I see fat parents rejoicing in their fatness, loving their bodies or accepting their bodies and moving into the space where they, you know, have a family and, I, I think everyone should have the option if they want to, you know, to have that, to have that. And the fact that we are still controlling that definitely, definitely um, makes me very, very sad. But I have, I also have so much hope. So I hold both at the same time. There's a lot of problems. The system's really messed up and there's a lot of great people and, and um, organizations out there who are trying to change it every day. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, and that's the perfect way to move into joy. <laughs> so what does, what, in addition to what you just shared, what does connect you to joy? Do you, like, do you feel, I'm, I'm always, I'm starting to get really curious about this with people is, do you feel like joy is a choice? Mm, oh, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, I think so. I think anything, anything we feel is a choice, not to say that if you don't choose it, it's not okay, but you know, I, yeah, I do think joy is a choice. Um, I think, and it, I think it's okay to not be joyful, right? I see both, I see both sides, but yeah, I, I, uh, I find joy in my children a lot these days. Um, my husband is, and my husband is currently, um, pretty sick and, uh, been in the hospital since January. And, uh, yeah. And so, um, my children bring me so much joy these days. They're four and 15 months and they just, are discovering everything about the world all at once. And so they seeing, seeing their, seeing their uh, little eyes light up at, you know, the silliest of things is, is, uh, is a big light in my day right now. Oh, that's amazing. 
Well, Christina, you've brought me so much joy. I feel like I've learned so much from you during this conversation. Thank you so much. I love, love, love talking about birth. I'm so happy to be here. I really appreciate all your prompting questions and thinking about this stuff makes me so excited for my next client meeting. <laughs> They're going to be like, what are you on? And I'm gonna just going to be so excited when I talk to them. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. I'll include all the information where people can reach out and connect with you. And I'm just, I'm so grateful that you're doing this work in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. The conversation I just had with Christina Hughes is sitting with me and I'm thinking about the power of birth, the power of the systems within which we birth and kind of that return to the core, kind of the core truth of birth, which is, you know, being deeply in the body and feeling safe there. So it got me thinking about this poem by Linda Hogan, which is called To Be Held. To be held by the light was what I wanted. To be a tree drinking the rain, no longer parched in this hot land. To be roots in a tunnel growing, but also to be sheltering the inborn leaves and the green slide of mineral down the immense distances into infinite comfort and the land here. Only clay still contains and consumes the thirsty need, the way a tree always shelters the unborn life, waiting for the healing after the storm, which has been our life. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Substack at fatjoy.substack.com. And please do check out the episode notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely, I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly Fat Joy Day, and we'll talk again soon.